This is the Exquisite Redemption Podcast, where we discuss neighboring, neighborhoods, neighborhood revitalization, and why I love chasing those wild turkeys down my own neighborhood street. The way I would describe Uncle Gary is friendly and easygoing. The one word I would use to describe Gary is eccentric. The one word I would use to describe Gary is inviting. Long life friend and very tender hearted. When the apocalypse happened or when the zombies start crawling out from under the woodwork, he is our first phone call. You call on Uncle Gary. Exactly. He's not recovering from his most recent knife wound. He gave himself. <laughs> he was cleaning well, he's his sharpening <laughs> knives he's sharpening every knives four seconds. Every well, today it's all good. Be, uh, tearful. He's he cries at the drop of a hat. Words used to replace the word exquisite include admirable, delicate, delicious, elegant, perfect, precise, and matchless. The history and etymology for exquisite played out, ultimately meaning to seek. The word redemption means the action of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment or clearing debt, recovery, retrieval, repurchase, repossession, quid pro quo, reclamation, satisfying observance. What does the title, Exquisite Redemption, have to do with Uncle Gary? It's a fair question. What does it mean to buy back, to redeem, to exquisitely redeem our own story, our place, our neighborhoods, our purpose? What does it mean for Uncle Gary to exquisitely redeem his own story? Let's listen in. Okay, Gary, if you're up for it, I would love to hear the story. Why you started acting? What, what was the moment where the acting bug bit you? Way back in the second grade, I started uh, performing as uh, uh, Soupy Sales, and he was a comedian back in the '60s. And I did the Soupy Sales Show, and he had an album, a vinyl, that came out and called the Soupy Sales Show, and I sang along with that. And we uh, had a lot of fun with that. And we took uh, pies, and we had pies, and we were throwing them in my face because he always got uh, hit with a pie in the face. And he sang a song, I love to get a pie in the face. you know. And uh, he was just a really funny guy, and it was a funny TV show. So second grade, I did that, and I did the part of uh, Fuzzy Wuzzy was a bear in a little play. And then from then on, all the all after that, I was just had the acting bug, and I started singing more, you know, and became a, a kind of a performer of some sorts. And I also did my athletics, my baseball, and my you know, uh, athletes type stuff, football and baseball. And I uh, also was a hunter and used archery and, and bows and arrows and guns and things and hunted. And when I was very young, because I grew up on a ranch out in Santa Ana Canyon called the Yorba Ranch. And uh, I've been uh, performing ever since. What was the first movie you acted in? 
after my father passed away in 1988, I started to really pursue an acting career in Hollywood, and I got an agent, and I did uh, several films. I did 1941 that was directed by Steven Spielberg. I played a sailor in that, and um, uh, I uh, was in Rocky II, and I played a uh, spectator in that. I was in the movie Hook with Robin Williams and Dustin Hoffman, and I... I played an extra role in that, and I did quite a few uh, feature, fi you know, films as an extra. Then I started doing commercial work, and I got hired to do a commercial that was a, a national commercial, and that means that it was shown all over the United States, and it was called One Call, and it was by General Electric Company, and it showed uh, a bunch of vignettes of, of ways people could use General Electric, you know, and there was this uh, little uh, stage uh, in the Shrine Auditorium. I spent the day there singing Rigo uh, a, 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 an operatic aria called La Donna Mobile from Rigolore that. And so I didn't have to sing it all the time because we were there for, you know, several hours on the stage of the Shrine Auditorium. And I sang uh, La Donna Mobile. And it shows in the, in the um, commercial, it shows this guy saying, well, our lighting has to be just right for Giovanni Marchese. And then it shows me going, la, you know, singing. And on stage for like three seconds, it shows me. And I made like thousands of dollars on that TV commercial, thousands of dollars. So that kind of gave me the bug like, wow, this is fun. So I did several commercials, uh, TV commercials. I did a California lottery commercial. Uh, I did a, um, a weight loss commercial. Uh, I did. Um, did you meet Dustin Hoffman? Yes, I did. I got to talk to him because one of my friends that was um, on the Mounted Posse with me, his name was Bob Jarvis. He was a Los Angeles Police Department uh, um, guy, and he was his bodyguard for over a week at one of his other, you know, some movie that they worked. And then Robin Williams, when he would see me on the set, he would go, hey, sonny boy, how you doing? And so I talked to Robin Williams as well. Okay, so what are these guys like when the camera isn't rolling? When I went up to Dustin Hoffman and talked to him about the bodyguard thing, he did not recall the bodyguard. Uh, Robin Williams was really friendly and called me sonny boy and smiled and everything. Susan Anton, I did a movie called Golden Girl, which was her first feature film. She, uh, on uh, the set, asked me why I was taking pictures, and I said, oh, just for myself and everything. And she said, oh, okay, come here. And I went up to Susan Anton, and she had her assistant hold the camera and take a picture, and she kissed me on the lips, which was a tremendous fun thing for me. And I played the part of Percy Featherstone, who was a gay uh, makeup artist. And we would, uh, I did makeup on model. Creature would, uh, he came down to the, he was at the beach, and he came and he murdered one of the models. That's and horrible. It was. It was a scary, scary movie. Oh, my goodness. What's another movie that you... I did a movie called The Double D Avenger. Yes, I was waiting for you to talk about that. Yes, that was a movie that I did uh, with um, uh, some people that were used by uh, a man named uh, Russ Myers. And Russ Myers was a director back in the 70s that hired these. They were just very well endowed, and he used them in his movies. And one was called Pussycat, Pussycat. One was... Um, I can't remember all the movies, but uh, these 
were after that, uh, you know, in the 80s is when he called them and asked them to be in this movie, The Double D Avenger. And it was about a woman that got superpowers. And um, she was my girlfriend, and her name was Chastity. And it was just a really fun time we had filming this movie. That happened in the 80s. Yes. Okay, and then what did you do d- between the 80s and 90s that transitioned you into, like, singing on cruises, Disney cruises specifically? How did that happen? Um, they had auditions for the first uh, Disney cruise ship, which was called the Disney Magic, and that was back in 1998, and I got a call after my audition. Uh, I think it was months later, I got a call by Disney, and they said, how soon can you be in the Bahamas? And I said, uh, in a week. How did you even start a relationship with the Di- with Disney for th- whoever to call you? Hey, can you be on this cruise? Like, how did you network with that? In 1973, I started with Disney uh, Disneyland in Anaheim, California. As a, uh, I got hired as a character, and I've got to play. Uh, Pinocchio and uh, the Seven Dwarfs and I got to play King Louis the Gorilla and I was playing all these characters and I was also um, singing with the uh, there was a barbershop quartet there that I would when they were not working you know um, they would call it um, on stage when they were off stage taking their breaks and stuff I got to sing some songs with them but I also got hired to sing as a Christmas caroler at Disneyland Hotel. And I got paid to, to be with a you know quartet, and we sang Christmas carols uh, at Disneyland Hotel. Then the third time I was hired for Disney, I was hired as a karaoke host at the, uh, it was called the, um, uh, s- the saloon, the dance hall saloon. It was uh, a lot of fun. And we uh, did that. Cool. This is my, uh, this is Gary. He's talking to these people here. They're doing an interview, so I thought I'd help him out, and, but I don't know what to say. <laughs> so we're having fun. I don't care. I mean, it doesn't bother me at all. Sorry. I know. Um, Any time when we're having an, I- when we're talking, if you yeah. want to break out into, like, a character. Oh, no, I would never do please that. Please do. Never, I would never do that but you have full permission okay okay back in the 70s these costumes were extremely hot in the summertime in fact uh they made it so i think we could only work at like 20 to 30 minutes at a time because in the summertime it was 130 degrees underneath those costumes i recall the king louis gorilla costume the, the boots alone that you had to wear, wore they, they were like 10 pounds a piece, and the head was 55 pounds. So that was on my shoulder. And back then, they didn't have air conditioners. They didn't have anything inside the costume. You sweat, because I was only like 17 or 18 years old back at the time, and it was uh, not really fun back then. It was tough. You started working on the Disney Cruise. Disney Cruise Lines, 1998 first inaugural cast of the Disney Magic cruise ship. Do you talk to any of those guys? No, but one of them 
uh, is a famous, famous choreographer, director. His name is Jeff Whiting. He was my uh, roommate in when we lived in the Bahamas uh, for uh, three months. And he is now a famous, famous, uh, like I said, is he's he was in that that interview show called Ted or something, talking about mm. a new program for choreography that he developed and everything. I mean, the kid's a genius, you mm -hmm. know, great kid. He was Peter Pan, and he was, uh, you know, he star he was the star of all the shows and everything. Just a great kid. What did you do when you weren't working with Disney? I was going to school part-time uh, at Cal State Fullerton, and um, I was uh, learning music education, studying that. And uh, we did, uh, in fact, back in those days, in 1976, we did the largest opera in the city of Fullerton. We did, um, we did um, uh, a German opera, and it was huge, and it was, you know, the whole, it, w it was just wonderful. It was a tremendous fun time uh, doing opera at Cal State Fullerton when, it was back in the early days of, you know. I was in college uh, at Fullerton Junior College in 1971, and I was taking a Chinese, it was called Chinese karate or Chinese kung fu or something, and I was uh, in the class doing some kicks and things or whatever, and someone came up to me and said, uh, my master would like to meet you. And I said, oh. Okay, so I went to this guy's, uh, went over to this guy's apartment in Yorba Linda, California, and he uh, met me and he started talking to me. His name was Michael Ventrell. He was a stuntman up in Hollywood. He did, played the part of, um, of Buck Rogers, uh, which Gil Gerard starred in it. He was Buck Rogers' um, double, uh, stunt double. He did a lot of movies, so many movies I can't even tell you, but Michael Ventrell and I would meet in his backyard and we would uh, study kung fu and, and practice kung fu. He would shoot arrows at me. We would block arrows from a bow and arrow. We would go in the park so at night. Can I ask you a really quick question? Yes. These bows and these arrows that you were blocking, were you blocking them with your hand? Yes. Like, like wait a second. So did these arrows have actual pointy ends? Yes. Oh, my God. They had tips on them, yes. They were kind of dangerous to do that kind of stuff. Were they poisonous tips? No, 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 no. Nothing oh, like that. okay. Um, well, that was one of my finest times in my life was learning Kung Fu by a master that was taught by Bruce Lee. Michael Vendrell moved to Hawaii, and I did not see him, but for many, many years I would keep in touch with him and everything. And uh, that was one of the things I just enjoyed so much was uh, doing Kung Fu and martial arts and everything. It changed my whole life. And how, how did it change your life? It made me become less violent it almost changed completely because uh since my stature is short will you tell us how tall you are i'm five four <laughs> and all my life i've been you know small the smaller than most kids you know my age and i was always called names like shorty and midget and stumpy and and um dwarf and all these names and whenever that would happen um i usually would not like that too much and it would hurt my feelings and whatever so I would that was not good I, I am glad that I, I studied with uh, Michael Vendrell 
and learn to calm down and uh, keep my temper. Because mm-hmm. I, I envision your feet not touching the ground. And you know how those uh, Netflix special movies where, you know, the ninja warrior floats through the air and, like, takes a person's neck and, like, puts him against a brick wall and they're like, yes, then they give it. That's like, exactly right. Yes, I could totally imagine that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> my feet were as fast as my hands were. Yes. In fact, they're so fast that you didn't see them move. Right. As a matter of fact, I did break uh, two-inch boards, you know, at demonstrations and things like that with a chop. And that was kind of impressive because I think the one-inch pine boards was the norm for everybody, breaking one-inch pine boards. And I did it with two-inch boards. Okay, Gary. I have a very, very important question, very serious question. Okay. If y- what is your superpower? Being a child of God. That's and my superpower. So that's probably one of your superhero powers, but I do think that your other superpower has to do with your voice. Yes. And that, like, if you see a bad guy trying to beat up an old lady, you start singing, it breaks their eardrums. I mean. No, I don't think that's true. So he's denying it, but I think it does happen. It's just my imagination. I'm just yes, guessing. Yes, thank goodness it's just your imagination. It's probably not. He's denying. And are you feeling a little more comfortable now? Are you yes. starting to- Yes, I'm starting to uh, feel more comfortable. Because you're not used to talking to a big old mic. No, I am used to talking to... (laughs) To a mic or to a guy named Mike? Yes, no. I'm used to talking with a microphone and and doing this type of thing. But since it's with you and I've never worked with you before, it is a new experience and I'm enjoying it very much. Okay, because I don't know what I'm doing. I appreciate it. (laughs) I, I think we're doing great. We're doing awesome. Okay, so my next question is... You grew up in the 60s, correct? Yes. Were you in the drug scene? Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about that, how that impacts your life today? Does it impact your life at this time? or? Yes, it does. Can you talk a little bit about that? Back in the 60s, when I was growing up and starting into high school, uh, back in those days when we were athletes, we were called jocks, I think they called us jocks. And then there were guys that were surfer dudes, and then there were... You know, uh, people that were uh, of science, uh, they were called nerds or not nerds, but uh, see, what did they call those people back then? Anyway, drugs had an effect because we used to drink alcohol. And when we drank alcohol, uh, we would uh, go to, you know, football games or everything. And we would go to parties and everything. And we would drink a lot. And I... Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, drank a little too much back then, and I don't remember a lot of things that happened back in those days. But suffice to say that I did, um, you know, remember that there were drugs and alcohol in those days, and um, that was uh, something that I kind of regret doing. I could have had probably a better life uh, if I would have stayed away from drugs and alcohol. What do you mean by a better life? I just think that it uh, probably caused brain damage and <laughs> or some kind of damage to myself. <laughs> like what? W- would not have happened otherwise. Well, I, my memory perhaps, uh, the way I do certain things, maybe it affects me to this day. I don't know. I think I got kind of uh, 
brain damaged from the drugs. Wow, back in the late 60s, early 70s, we took drugs of uh, a lot of kinds, but since I was into martial arts, I was into uh, very much into uh, Buddhism and uh, that's Eastern religions, and so we would take hallucinogenics like uh, peyote and LSD and, and things like that because I did it all by myself or with a few other people. I would never do it at parties. I never did it. Um, you know, to get attention. I always did it in nature, up in the mountains, away from people, where it became a spiritual experience for me. And I think, and, and I am sure of it, that it brought me closer to Jesus Christ, my Savior. It gave you a spiritual experience. Yes. Can you talk a little more about that? Will you describe that a little more? Yes. The reason why I think it uh, helped me spiritually is because when you are on mind-expanding type of drugs, you're into the realm of the supernatural. I actually did recall experiences uh, with uh, demons, uh, just, just experiences that I can't describe because they were so otherworldly experiences. I cannot ex describe them um, of this world because they were of the supernatural realm. And I recall traveling to a planet where there was no um, buildings or anything and things were like lights and there were blinking type lights instead of things. And I remember talking to the people there and they said, oh, we don't need God. Uh, we're just here and we just create things and we, you know, and as soon as they said we don't need God, I said, see ya, and I left. healthy for people these these individuals that th said they didn't need god where were they located was it in the dimension that you and i can see or was no. it in it was just was it like a collective consciousness no i think it was like it could have been like in another galaxy or someplace far away maybe through a wormhole uh, time tunnel whatever that went to another uh, solar system or something because it's another planet altogether and they were these beings that I did not recognize and it's just it's so hard to explain when you're talking about the supernatural realm mm -hmm. but that got me closer to God because I knew that evil and good existed were very bright and um, it was completely different you could not explain it through our language because it was not of this world so I, I cannot even imagine how to explain those experiences now we're heading off into another thank subject goodness. <laughs> thank goodness for that are you doing okay Gary yeah we're sitting in a very intimate setting. We're sitting on my couch, so this might be a little awkward. As I think I'm feeling a little awkward too, just because I've never done this before. So You're doing good. You're doing oh, fine. Oh, thank you. Doing thank a great you. job. So you have told me that you've you've seen ghosts. Yes. Will you? That's a good story. Will you tell us those okay. stories? All right. Because these are great. 
<laughs> I was a, a director of the Gospel Quartet Society, and I had about 45 singers with me, and we would rent out a church uh, that was in uh, Orange County, and it was built in about 1912. It was a very old church. And at night, we would go there at 7.30 or so in the evening, and we would rehearse in the church. And I was taking, we were taking a restroom break, and I was walking towards the restroom, and right in front of me, within, I could touch this person. It was so close. He was right in front of me. He was uh, a young man, and he had dark hair, and he had a plaid shirt on, and he had green khaki pants on, and he was not someone from my group. So I thought, oh, he's from the alcohol anonymous group, you know, in church and another room and everything. So he started walking in the, the uh, bathroom door. When he walked through the door, he closed the door behind him. I opened the door, and the light was off. It was pitch black. And as I switched on the light, I was looking for this young man saying, why, did you, why didn't you turn on the light? As I said that, I was in the bathroom, and there was no one there. The friend of mine behind me said, shouldn't there be someone else in here? And I said, yes, there should be. And our arms, the hair on our arms stood up. And I said, and he said, what about that guy that was in front of you? And I said, yes, you saw him? And he goes, yes, there was a guy right in front of you. I go, where is he? And we were just looking at each other going, oh, my goodness. So I talked to the pastor of the church. And the pastor of the church said, oh, that was James. And I said, what? And he goes, there was a pastor back in the 60s that had a son that was an epileptic and he was up on the sanctuary roof, and he had a seizure, and he fell off the roof and was killed. In the front of the church is a little a memorial. It says, In Memoriam of James Cunningham and this, this man. And they had seen him many, many times there at the church. Many people did. I saw him up in the choir loft like two more times. And a lot of people had seen this person, and he did not. It was a supernatural story because how did that happen? And the weirder part, the more strange than that, is the fact that the pastor of the church said, oh, that's James. I mean, they, he just came out and said, oh, yeah, that's one of our ghosts. You know, that's James. He's a ghost. You know, he died back in the 60s, you know, and all this. And I was just going, are you kidding me? Just there in front of me, right in front of me. And my friend, that's what was surprising, too, is my friend said, wasn't there a guy right in front of you? I go, you saw him. Yeah. And he goes, yes, I did. He was right in front of you. I go, where did he go? And we're going, oh, no, there's where? I have no idea. The bathroom was a small, tiny bathroom. It had a urinal, a, a stall, and a sink, and it was like eight feet by eight feet or smaller than that. It was a tiny bathroom. So there was nowhere to go. I mean, he was gone. It was just amazing. What does it mean to inhabit, to live, to own, to buy back our story, to have it redeemed, to redeem it with living with one another, to being present with one another? How does Gary Cannavello transform from a seeker who had wandered for years, had anchored himself where he claimed place for 
a community of forgotten and has become a pastor to those who are losing their memories. He is living with and being with individuals most of our culture have forgotten and do misunderstand. Thank you, Gary Cannavello, a.k.a. Uncle Gary, for sitting with us and telling part of your story. This is Bethany Mahan with the Exquisite Redemption Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm looking forward to meeting with you again. Same time, same place. Bocker out. Bocker out.